Our scripture this morning is Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. 8, 31 through 39. <clears throat> what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring the charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who then is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and more than that, who was also raised, who is now at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, for it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am certain that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor anything present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is the word of God. Thank you, Al. Ask our ushers if you'd come at this time. We'll receive the uh, morning offering. And as they serve us in that regard, I'd like you to also listen to a little update on a couple things that are happening today. I want to remind those of you that are members that we have an important members meeting tonight around 7.15. Uh, we're going to consider the new church covenant or the edits of the old one and to ask you to affirm that. As a part of that meeting as well, we'll give you an update on what's happening with the Fishers campus and particularly the location for that um, meeting place in the future and also some long-term plans that uh, we've been working on. So if you're a member, we want you to come and participate in that. Just prior to that uh, members meeting, we'll have our normal um, 6 o'clock uh, prayer time tonight, our Fresh Encounter service. If you're coming to that, which I'd love you uh, would love to have you come. Please bring your Bible. We're going to be praying through the Scriptures. I'm going to show you how to actually take the Word of God and then pray in and through it. So if you struggle in prayer, I'm going to show you tonight how to use the Bible to increase your praying. So if you'd like to know how to pray more, don't read a book. Come and pray with us tonight, and uh, we'll help you learn how to do that a little more effectively. And then at 5 o'clock, we have a, an elder prayer time. That If you've got something personal in your life that you'd like someone to pray for you about, my wife and I and Pastor Don and Cheryl will be in the prayer room uh, down to my right over here at 5 o'clock to about 5.45. We'd love to pray with you if there's something going on um, in your life. I want to remind you that two weeks ago we talked about covenant renewal, and if all goes well tonight with the um, vote on the new church covenant, then tomorrow morning, uh, those of you who are members, or sometime this week, next couple days, we'll receive an email asking for you to take some time to read over that member covenant and then to respond back to us um, as elders that, A, you're here, B, any feedback or prayer requests that you have for us, and C, that you've read through the covenant, you understand it, and uh, all of that. So it's an important season for us to go through because we're as elders committed to shepherding you as a congregation, trying to figure out how we can do an even better job of uh, caring for the group of people that God has entrusted to our care. So tonight at 6, hope you can come and then stay for our members' meeting tonight around 7, 7.15 or so.
All right, let's pray together and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we're in front of this great and glorious text, um, a passage that is loaded with so much help if we could just get our minds and then our hearts around it. And so I pray that you'd help me today to be helpful to this people that in the middle of life's dark moments that your word would come alive and the truths of Romans 8 would be an anchor to us. I pray that we would see today the beauty of a battle cry, um, a passion, a commitment that needs to be ours because of what you have done in and through the work of Christ. So come now, Lord, please help us to understand this passage. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At my Christian high school on Tuesdays and Fridays, the whole environment of my school was electric because Tuesday night and Friday nights were basketball game nights. Whether it was students or faculty or alumni, if you were part of my school, which was Campbell's Christian High School, you came to the basketball games. There was a pet band. There was all sorts of energy, excitement. I mean, it, it was sort of the cultural experience if you were part of, of the school that I went to. And part of that cultural experience was something kind of unusual that happened between the third and fourth quarter. During the break, an old man... Every single game would come out, he'd stand at midcourt, he'd face the home crowd, and then lead them in this cheer. Come seven, come eleven, come rickety ranty shanty town, who can knock those Christians down? Nobody, 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 and the place went berserk. It cheered, the buzzer sounded, fourth quarter, we went out in the, the court, and it was incredibly motivational. This, this, Cam was a Christian high cheer. I was telling my kids a story about this, and they were like, what does rickety ranty shantytown mean? And they said, come seven? Come eleven? What's that? And honestly, I have no idea what it means. To this day, I, I don't know what it means. All I know is when that brother got out in the middle of that court, we cheered and screamed. It was super motivational, even though I have no idea what it was all about. Now, as crazy as that sounds, I know that my experience is not unique. My guess is that your school had some crazy thing that they said. You know, maybe it's something, I don't know, boiler up. I, I just don't, you know, or, or, or something else, right? So I know it's hammered down, but whatever that means. So, I, or maybe you can think of a scene in a movie or, um, something from history, a great battle cry, or, um, sometimes they're silly. Uh, sometimes they're, they're really loaded with meaning. For instance, if um, you served in the Marine Corps, you know that hoorah is a big deal. And everything connected with that battle cry and that affirmation that we're in this together. You see, that's what a, a battle cry does. It serves as a, um, a unifying vision of who we are, a statement about what we're going to do, and um, for that matter, how we're going to handle adversity Romans 8, 31 to 39 is a battle cry for weary saints. It's a battle cry for followers of Jesus who live in a world filled with suffering. So I don't know, I don't know where you're at today. You may have come in here just completely worn out. You may have gotten bad news this last week or 
Maybe it's not bad news that's new. It's like old bad news that just won't go away. And every day you wake up and the first thought is, oh, he, he's still gone. Or wonder what the test results are going to be. Or this is not what I thought marriage is going to be like. This text is for the graveside and for the bedside. It is for waiting for test results. It is for the moment when the doctor says, I'm sorry, but there's nothing else we can do. This text is for persecution and accusations. It's for opportunities to share your faith that pushes you to open your mouth for the gospel. This text is for those moments when you're alone, when a friend has mocked you because of your faith. This is a text for those moments of fear or uncertainty. Really, this text is for a follower of Jesus who lives in a broken world for any moment when you are wrestling with, this is really hard, and I'd really like this to be over, and I need to think something different. We come today to the end of Romans, and we come now to the summit of the summit of this book, and the battle cry for a believer coming out of this text is, God is for us. The beautiful hope of this passage, beginning in verse 31, going all the way to verse 39, is at the end of the day, come what may, God is for us. Verse 31, we see the proposition there after the first question. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So Paul sets this proposition, God is for us. He, that's a positive way to say it or to state it in a sentence or to say it in a question would be, if God is for us, which he is, then who can be against us? And of course, it's a rhetorical question. So the answer to the question, who can be against us, is what? No one. If God is for us, who can be against us? What does it mean that God is for us? To say that God is for us means that everything in God's redemptive plan, everything in his sovereign purposes, everything that relates to the situation in our lives are always in accordance with his love for us. This is not a promise that everything's going to go well in your life. This is not a promise that you're never going to be opposed This is not a promise that you're going to live a long and healthy life till you're like 98 years old. It's a promise that no matter what happens in life, God is fundamentally for you. Verse 31 begins by asking a question. What shall we say to these things? What does that little phrase, these things, mean? What, what's the reference for that? There, there's two of them, I think. They kind of build on one another. First, it, it means the immediate context of what we just looked at last week, which was verses 26 to 30, and really verses 18 all the way to verse 30, which was about the matter of suffering. And if you remember what we talked about, we said that, Suffering needs to be considered in light of the glory that we are to receive and that we ought to weight suffering as not worthy in comparison to the glory that we are to receive. And therefore, Paul told us to wait with patience 
And then last week we saw that God is going to answer all of our prayers, conforming them to the glorious purposes of His will by the Holy Spirit. And then we saw that there's this plan that God has for our lives, for those who are followers of Jesus, and it is a sure and definitive plan, a plan that was linked with five words. These words were foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. And so the idea was that God links all of these words together in this beautiful redemptive plan, and that the process of us being brought to Him is set and sealed by his sovereign power. That whoever he foreknew, he also predestined. Whoever he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. In other words, all of those words are linked together and they are guaranteed by the power of the Almighty God. So those who he foreknows will also be glorified. God has got you from the very foundations of the earth to the very final day of judgment. You belong to him. That's the point. So Paul then says, so what do we say to these things? What do we say to that? What's the implication of God being that big? And the the implication is, God is for us. That's what it means. It means that he is working out the beautiful reality of his plan. There's a bigger context, though, not just verses 18 to 30. It really also means everything that we have seen beginning in chapter 5 all the way through chapter 8, that God's deep, deep love of his children has been manifested to us by virtue of the beauty of the gospel that Paul has been unfolding really since chapter 5. Take your Bible and go to chapter 5 and verse 1. Let me show you just a few of the ideas that... Paul was, has been showing us. And what I want you to see here is how all of these things build. Romans 5 relates to Romans 8. Romans 6 relates to Romans 8. Romans 7 relates to Romans 8. It's all together. Paul has been building this theological framework. So in chapter 5 and verse 1, we read before and studied, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then skip ahead to verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So Paul grounds us in this idea of justification, which means that God, through Christ, grants to his children who receive Christ as their Savior the freedom from their sin and gives them the gift of Christ's righteousness. And then look at Romans 6 and verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So not only is this justification thing a reality, but now there's this union with Christ thing that's a reality. And look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In other words, what happened to Christ is going to happen to those who are the followers of Jesus. That's the promise. And then look at chapter 6 and verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to that standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. That now, not only is there this theoretical, positional truth over those who are followers of Jesus, but it practically works out in our lives. We've been set free from sin. We've become new slaves of righteousness. And even though, look at chapter 7 and verse 24, even though there's a tension that still exists because we still live in an imperfect world with imperfect bodies, with imperfect hearts, 
There's hope in the personal work of Jesus. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So there's tension in following Jesus. And then we come to the introduction of the summit, which we found in chapter eight and verse one, where he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul's been building and building and building and building to get us to the point of where we are in Romans chapter 8. So you need to know that every ounce of hope that you are going to hear in this passage, every ounce of hope has theological roots to it. Listen to me. There is no hope apart from good theology. You can't live in the midst of suffering without having a God-centered view of the world, of suffering, and yourself. If it's up to you to interpret the world through what you see, or if it's up to you to interpret the world based on what you feel, you will not make it through suffering. And I'll show you why in a moment. You need to know that as we've walked through the book of Romans, if you've been a part of this, if you've had your children in this room, you've served them well. If you have communicated your words at home to them about what you've learned, if you just simply listened to what God has been saying to us in Romans in the entire book, you need to know that Paul has been building, and you have thereby, God helping you, been building a framework, a robust understanding of life and suffering and hardship so that when difficult moments come, based upon what you've heard in the book of Romans, you will think about those things differently. Everything we have studied so far in this book is to demonstrate over and over again that God is for us. And we need that reminder, friends, because when suffering comes... The reality of the pain of that suffering or the internal musings of our hearts will begin to confuse us to think God is not for us. He's against us. Look how hard this is. Look how much we're struggling. God is against us. He's against us. He's against us. He's bringing these hardships in our life. And you need another framework. You need a bigger vision from Romans, in Romans chapter 8 in particular, to help you to see, no, 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 no. No, God is for you. And you need that word to encourage a friend who's in so much pain and struggling and fighting through to remind them, God is for you, God is for you, God is for you. Without that robust gospel-centered vision of who and what God is, you, you won't interpret suffering correctly. You see, my hope is that what has begun to happen in you is that there's a, there's a framework being built so that when difficulties come, you can interpret them based upon the Bible, not just what you feel. You can interpret them based upon Romans 8, not just what you think, or So many people, they they interpret life based upon their understanding of fairness. Like, like their definition of fair is ultimate. And so it doesn't, it's not fair to me, so it must not be fair at all. And Romans 8 helps us to let go of that. And you, you need these truths deep within your heart so that this becomes not just what you think, but it becomes what you feel. This is one of the ways I think that really good hymns, really good songs, really good choruses help us. Because you know what my nuclear option is when I can't think right 
And when I'm struggling in despair, and I, I know this stuff, I teach this stuff, but I still have to battle it. You know what the nuclear option for me is? I sing at it. I do. Because somehow that singing connects theology and emotion, and it helps me to reaffirm what I believe to be true. That, that combination of deeply rooted thought combined with some kind of musical score helps my soul. So if you're a, a songwriter, God bless you. We need more help when we're suffering to have songs that we sing that capture who and what we are and how to make it through difficult and hard times. In fact, I was reading recently, you know that martyrs, They sang. They sang all the time. They sang on the way out to the stake. Michael Horton says this, It became so common for martyrs to spend their final time on earth singing God's praises as they passed by the watching crowds that the authorities resorted to cutting out the martyrs' tongues before they were escorted to the stakes for burning. So what prompts a martyr to sing? What prompts you to sing in the midst of your difficulty? It is that you know that no matter what happens to us, that God is for us. To know that God is for us is what has given the church confidence to love risky people. Do you have any risky people in your life? Maybe you're sitting next to one. You're like, I gotta go home with this person. So what do you do? You get in the car and you're like, God's for me. You know, I mean, so <laughs> you work with someone at work that's really hard, you see him in the hallway, you're like, oh man, here he comes. You need to remember, God is for you. It's what has led people to give their lives to reach resistance tribes. What motivates somebody in missions to go preach the gospel to somebody who doesn't want to hear you say the name of Jesus and for that matter threatens to kill you if you don't stop saying the name of Jesus? What prompts people to keep going there? Answer, because God is for them. What prompts people to joyfully endure trials, to sing while in prison, to be, to be an unstoppable force for God's kingdom in the world? You know what it is? It is that God is for us. That is the fuel. Listen to me. God is for us is the fuel for missions. It's the fuel for ministry. It's the fuel for suffering. It's the fuel for persecution. It's the fuel in the midst of countercultural living. It's how believers live in the midst of missions and ministry and suffering and persecution. It is, it is our battle cry. God is for us. So that's the main thought of this text. Everything else in this passage supports that main thought. God is for us. Let me show you three additional implications that then come out of that singular idea. So if God is for us, then what does that mean? And there are three things that that means in this passage. So if God is for us, the first one is who can be against us? And the answer is no one. So the first promise here, or the first hopeful implication, is that there is no opposition. Or you can think of it this way, no successful opposition. If God is for us, who could be against us? The, what's implicit in that question, which is really a rhetorical question, so it's a statement, is that there is no power greater than God's power. 
In other words, God's favor, His grace, and His love trump everything because there is no one greater than Him. That God promises to vanquish all the enemies that present themselves before believers. Now this may not happen in your lifetime, but the Bible promises us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Verse 32 then serves to answer the question, how can believers be assured that no opposition will stand against them? So the idea is God is for us, who can be against us? No one. And then Paul argues, so how can you know that? What what evidence do you have? And his evidence is nothing less than the cross. So just know here, That when you're suffering and you're struggling, you need the gospel. And by that, I mean not just you know that you're a sinner and you know that Christ died for your sins. That that is the gospel and that you've received Christ as your Savior. That's the starting point. But then the gospel from there, it expands to help us understand suffering and hardship and difficulty. How so? Well, what Paul does here is he argues from the greater to the lesser. And essentially, the lesser is, eventually you'll see, God promises you He's going to give you all things. He's going to take care of everything. And if you look at that and go, well, how do I know that? Paul says, look at the cross. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. That's He, he takes us back to the cross to remind us that there is no more definitive statement about God's love or no more definitive statement about God being for us than in the death of His own Son. So when your soul wonders, is God for me? You come back to the cross. Of course He's for me. Look at this cross. Is God really for me? Of course He is. He didn't spare His own Son for you. Of course He's for you. The problem is, is that when we weigh out the suffering and the pain of it, In contrast to the weight and the value of the cross, we sometimes would rather have no suffering than to really behold the beauty of what happened in the crucifixion. Verse 32 then ends with a promise. It's a promise of blessing. He says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The argument is this, that if the sacrifice of Jesus was so great, then blessing his children, which is a far lesser reality, is surely a certain thing. There is, Paul says, no opposition to harm believers, and there is nothing that can stop God from blessing believers. And what that means is this, that there's nothing that happens in your life, nothing that comes into your life that God can't take and convert it into making you more like the image of His Son. There's nothing that happens in your life that God cannot make a gift to you, a blessing to you, in order to make you more and more formed in the image and likeness of Jesus, which is the plan. So the question is, when we consider what it means for God to be for us, it does not mean that life is going to be easy or that everything's going to go according to our plan, but it does mean that even the bruisings or the hard moments of life, God can turn those into a blessing. 
Or as one person said, he is no fool or much enticed who loses everything but Christ. It won't be long until the rod becomes the tender kiss of God. Some of you who've lived long enough, you can look back on your life and you can know that maybe it was 10 years, 15 years, 20 years ago, you were in the middle of a trial and you were like, there is no point to this. This is absolutely worthless. This is so random. And you had struggled with anger and bitterness. And now you look back on your life, you can see how you changed even despite what someone maybe did to you or something that was so incredibly unfair, and you can see the way that God has used it to form and frame you into the likeness of Jesus, and now you can see that trajectory a little differently. And what this text is telling you is, yes, even hard things that come from a kind God are intended to be blessings in order to conform us into the image and likeness of Jesus. The issue is not whether or not what I just said is true. The issue is whether or not you believe it to be true. And this text reminds us, God is for us, and so nothing can oppose us. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 21 to 23. There's a cross-reference here I want you to see. Paul says this, and there's so much similarity in language between 1 Corinthians 3 In Romans 8, he says, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. The idea is not just that God's going to bless you in the future, but it is that there is this, you possess these things now. There's a sense in which God is is giving them to you even now, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, and then he lists these things, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all our All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. The meaning of this is that whether it's a person, or the world, or death, or the present, or future, it is all part of a believer's victorious union with Jesus. And so what this text and what Romans 8 are essentially saying is that everything then becomes a gift because of our union with Jesus. Even, think of this, Paul even lists death. He says even death is yours. Why death? Because even in death, God takes that, and to be absent with the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. And so, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen to you? You could die. And as terrible and undesirable as that is, even death itself has already been defeated. The grave, according to the resurrection of Jesus, has been conquered. And so that even death itself does not stop believers from participating in the beautiful plan of God if they'll see the plan of God as broader than just their short 85 years on planet Earth. The key is to be able to see whom God foreknew, he predestined, those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified, that God has a sovereign plan for our lives. And our little living portion on planet earth is a tiny little sliver of God's redemptive purpose for the world and for your life. The challenge though, friends, when you're in suffering, is to remember that. Because for a lot of really good reasons and right reasons, We can be in the middle of suffering and forget there is a bigger plan that I love and cherish. And and that plan is God is for me. So the first implication, there is no opposition. Here's the second implication. There is no condemnation. If you're an internal processor or 
you have more of an introverted sort of um, personality, you, you really need what I'm about to say. As I studied this, this was helpful for me because I'm an internal processor. And I can get stuck in this constant spin of overanalyzing and overthinking, especially when suffering comes. What does the text say? Back to Romans 8. Romans 8 says this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And verse 34, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So the primary focus of this passage is on the moment of final judgment. And the question is this, who in that moment of final judgment is going to be, is going to have the standing to bring a charge against God's elect? Who has the right to condemn them? The, the image seems to be of a courtroom. And just imagine this with me. You're in a courtroom, and in the middle of that courtroom is this fearful possibility that someone could bring charges against you before a holy God, or who could pronounce judgment against you because of your sinfulness. Imagine, for instance, the devil saying something like this. This, this man, this man Mark Rogup, is a sinful man at his core. Imagine the devil saying this. His thoughts, his actions, his words, they're continually filled with the same rebelliousness for which you condemned me, God. He is guilty and he deserves to be judged like I was judged. And imagine me standing there hearing that. What am I going to say? What he just said is true. He knows it, God knows it, and I know it. All, everyone knows that. It's absolutely true what's the answer in that day i can't i can't levy a defense against that charge it's it's accurate you know what the answer is it's for god himself to say i've already declared him not guilty and for christ to stand at the right hand of god and said i paid for that man's sins And I have risen from the dead to verify that it not only happened, but it worked. And this is Christ who then becomes my advocate, my defense attorney, and the one who liberates me from the accusations of the devil. That's the image. That Christ not only paid for our sin, but he was raised from the dead in order to verify that Christ's death counted for me. So the idea is that Christ is not only at the right hand, he is interceding for us. Just think of that. Here's Christ praying for his people in the middle of their trials, knowing that they are facing the condemnations of the devil, and what's more, are facing the internal condemnations of their own heart. It's a great moment in the book Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian is, is confronted and assaulted by a foul fiend named Apollyon. And this, this demon accuses him of unfaithfulness to God in his journey, which was true, and he recounts to Christian all the ways that he has failed God and how undeserving he is of God's grace. And to this charge, Christian replies, all this is true, and much more. I love that. You've left things out, is what he says. 
But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. Besides, these sins possess me in your own country. I I have grown under them, been sorry for them, and have now obtained pardon from my prince. So what does it mean? It means that when you think about how could all of my sins be covered, you remember God is for you, and he's so for you because of what he did by virtue of his son. This is really practically helpful when you're suffering because I think for many of us, myself included, our natural bias is to assume that if we were better, then these things wouldn't happen. It's a really hard thing when you experience suffering and you begin to wonder, God, did I do something wrong? Or when suffering comes and you hear sermons like this and you leave and you're like yes and then an hour later you're, you're sinning and you're 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 saying things and you're treating your family poorly because the, the the pressure of suffering just it pulls all sorts of junk out of you and you lay your head on the pillow at night and you think not only is this hard but i am blowing it and i'm failing as a father or as a mother or and you begin to spiral You don't need the devil to do his accusing. Your own knowledge of your shortcomings sinks your ship quite well. Where do you go in those moments? You know where you go? You come back. No, God, you are for me. You know me. You love me. You bought me and all of my perfections. And my hope is not in my performance. My hope is in your promise that if I'm in Christ, I'm a new creature and that you have loved me. And you set your heart on promises like Romans 8, that who shall bring any charge against God's elect? I can't even bring charges against me. I'm not credible. The devil can't. Only God can. And God has justified me. There's no other court. There's no one to appeal to. God has determined and identified and said over me, not guilty. And who is he to condemn? Christ is the one who paid my debt. And even in this moment is interceding for me. So it doesn't help to deny that I'm I'm guilty. I am guilty. What we need to do instead is to be reminded what God has said about us. And what I have often done when my soul is just spinning is to sing or cite words like these when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward, I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The battle cry against guilt and failure is God is for me. Here's the third implication, and that is this. Not only is, if God is for us, there's no opposition. If God is for us, there's no condemnation. If God is for us, third, there's no separation. And this is the longest um, in this section And the idea here relates to the durability of Christ's love. The question underneath these verses is, is there anything greater or is there any way for our relationship with Christ to be destroyed? This is really important if you've ever been abandoned. 
If you had a father or mother who walked out and you had a spouse that's left you, if you've had children say, yeah, I'm done with you and, and walked away, and you had people who said they loved you and then they left you. And so you come to Romans 8 and you're like, well, yeah, I, I believed that I would always be loved, but there's lots of things in my life that would give me evidence that this doesn't always happen. So how do I know that God is always going to love me? And that's what Paul is going to help us to see here. So he says this, verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he he lists very personal things for himself, like tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sorrow. All of these things were dynamics that Paul had faced in his life. And so apparently he, he wants this list to become vibrant for us to see and feel the things that were pressing him. And this, is, this list is not meant to be comprehensive. You could probably make up your own list. Here's a, a, just a, a random sampling of, of things I think that we ought to take this text and apply it to. Things like cancer. Can cancer separate you from his love? Or an adulterous spouse? Or family conflict, like your family fell apart? or sexual abuse, or another job loss, or infertility, miscarriages and failed adoptions, or maybe just yesterday, utter loneliness, maybe betrayal of friends, rejection from your family. The point is this, any type of pain in life It's meant to provide color on God's promise that nothing can separate you from Christ's love. What's interesting is then verse 36, Paul quotes Psalm 44. He says, it's like he ups the ante. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. That's not a happy verse. (laughs) Nobody got a mug yesterday for Valentine's Day with that verse on it. There you go, baby. We're all being killed. Look at that. Happy Valentine's Day. My guess is, I don't know, but I don't imagine that the scripture memory verses that we have our kids memorize in Nuwana or in children's Sunday school, I, I bet that isn't, you know, what's your verse today, honey? For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. I, I just don't. It's in the Bible, but why, why is it here? Here's why. Because Psalm 44 is about the righteous people who are suffering and about their need for God to intervene. And what Paul is doing is linking the church at Rome to the historical presence of the church, that the church has always suffered hardship and suffering. And what he's doing here, and what I'm trying to do, is to help you understand that if you are a follower of Jesus, suffering always happens, but separation from God never does. That's why I quote Psalm 44. So that we know part of what it means to live in the world is there's going to be suffering, there's going to be hardship. So the hope for a Christian is not no suffering. The hope for a Christian is no separation. And that's why verse 37 is so strong that he says, no, 
No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The idea is you're going through life, you have all these pressures, all these problems, all these challenges that are on the outside and on the inside. And in the midst of this hard-pressed life, there's this group of people who know that God is for them, and they continually say, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. And when things and doubts come your way, things of difficulty and hardship that you are reminded through this text, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors. That the bond of love between God and His children is so strong and so sovereign that everything that God intends for us is always kind, even though it is incredibly hard at times. Again, a scene from Pilgrim's Progress. Christian is in the home of the interpreter. He sees a fire against a wall. He sees a man who is the devil who's pouring water on the fire. And yet the fire gets hotter and hotter and hotter. The more he pours water, the hotter the fire gets. He doesn't understand it. Until the interpreter takes him around the backside of the wall, and he sees on the other side of that wall, the fire is open, and Christ is on the other side. And the minute when the devil pours water, the Savior pours oil. And so while the devil works harder to extinguish the flame, Christ is working even harder to supply more and more grace. You know what that means and what Romans 8 is telling us? It means here that you never run out of a supply of God's grace to help you in the midst of trial. The devil or your own flesh or the circumstances may tell you, I can't do this anymore. I've run out of the ability to make it through this trial. And the Bible says that it's fundamentally not true because you are never separated from God's love. Ever. And then just to be sure that we understand and feel this text, Paul concludes with a rhetorical flourish that makes hurting believers want to shout. He says, I am sure. And then imagine him writing this. He's, he's probably walking around in a room and he's thinking of everything he could possibly grab a hold of. From every sphere and, and, and every arena of life. He's like, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does Paul say? He's saying there is no power, no authority, no realm, no creature, no dominion. There is nothing that ever happens in your life that ever separates you from the love of God. In other words, everything always has kindness and sovereign love built into it. There are times that it doesn't feel that way, does it? And I've been there. When I've sat on the edge of my bed or been alone in a car just saying, God, I, I know you're not mean, but man, this feels like it. And I've anchored my soul to something deeper than my feelings or my ability to see reality to say, God, I know that you are for me. I don't see how in this situation, but I know that you are for me and that nothing can separate me from your love and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and there is nothing that can be against me when you are for me. So to be in Christ means that you're always loved. It means that no matter what happens in life or death, that God is always for you. The text says nothing can separate us from the love of God. And notice this last phrase is so important. In Christ Jesus our Lord. So listen to me. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to know that the power of what I'm talking about here in terms of being able to make it through suffering is grounded in a relationship with Christ. You can't 
believe that God is for you in hardship if you haven't tasted that he's for you in salvation. When you have tasted so deeply of the well of salvation, when you've experienced the grace of forgiveness, and you know that God would do this cross thing for me, and I have set my eyes on that reality and have believed in that, then that's the way that you then are able to see suffering. You see it through the lens of the gospel. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, it may be that all the suffering in your life has brought you to the point for you to realize that you're trying to make it on your own and you can't do it anymore. That your sin and the suffering in the world are both telling you you need to receive Christ. And that little phrase, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Apart from in Christ, there is no love. There, there, there's only judgment justified, righteous indignation, and yet when a person comes to faith in Christ, everything changes not only about their soul, but also about the circumstances around them. It means that if you're a follower of Jesus, you may be here today and you may be just so weary. It may be that not just having dealt with something recently, you've been dealing with something for a long for a long time, or something that's got a long-term future, and I can't solve or fix your feelings in the future. I can't even solve and fix them now, but I, what I can tell you is this, that the Bible tells me most assuredly that God is for you. He's not against you. And when you have the self-condemnation that comes over you, you need to bring yourself back to the cross. And then when circumstances in your life present themselves that you wonder, how is this possibly loving? You have to bank your heart not on what you see with your eyes or what you feel with your heart, but what you know according to the Word of God, that God is for you and not against you. That at the end of the day, the same God who orchestrated all of the events of your conversion is the same God who's still orchestrating all the events of your life. And your battle cry in the midst of hard moments or dealing with hard people or risky ventures in the name of Christ is at the end of the day, God, you are for me, you are for me, you are for me. And out of the overwhelming anchor of that reality, God calls us to go out in the world and love people and bear up under hard circumstances, and trust him all the way until Jesus comes, or we meet him face to face through death. Because even then, he still is for us. Would you bow your heads with me? I invite our elders and our folks who pray, prayer team, if you'd come up at the front. God only knows where all of us are at this morning. And the way we're going to end our service today is just to allow you a few moments to consider what does it mean that God is for you. And then afterwards, these brothers and sisters are here to pray because there, there has to be a number of you who just need to hear again, God is for you, and have somebody pray over you. No matter how long it's been going on in your life or how deep the struggle is or how recent the the challenge that has come upon your life is, we all need to be reminded God is for us and not against us. So we're going to take a few moments. It's a time of silent, prayerful meditation. When you hear the music, you could be dismissed. And then a number of you just need to come up here and have some folks pray over you today.
So let's now allow the Lord, and Lord, would you please do this, use this time to speak to us about what it means to believe that you are for us.